0: Metzler and welcome to The Charge. Today we have with us Dr. Matthew Lundberg, who is the director of the DeVries Institute for Global Faculty Development um, at Calvin University and the author of Christian Martyrdom and Christian Violence on Suffering and Wielding the Sword, published by Oxford University Press in 2021. Dr. Lundberg, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me, Dennis. I'm glad to be here talking with you.
0: All right. So we're going to be dealing with the issue of just war and pacifism and martyrdom. I've already um, put out three videos promoting pacifism, and I already have a couple scholars lined up who are going to promote pacifism. And I thought it only fair to bring on somebody from just war uh, opinion, and it's good for me, and it, it challenges me, and so uh, – this will be good. Uh, first of all, uh, in your book relating to martyrdom, just war and pacifism, what was your purpose? What were you hoping to accomplish in the book?
1: Well, first of all, I should say it's very kind of you to you know have someone else uh, representing the other perspective on this, this Christian conversation. Uh, you, you know, this, this project started out as more general research on the theological meaning of martyrdom and in the course of doing that research i i kind of got fascinated with the question of how to make sense of this paradox that we encounter from time to time when we look at the the mainstream christian church and its history and this is the paradox that the book is all about on the one hand we we see that suffering violence for jesus sake uh suffering violence out of faithfulness for him with the martyrs as sort of the key example and symbol of that, that is set right next to the Christian Church's willingness to sanction the inflicting of violence in certain circumstances, with just war being the main example of that. So we've got the suffering of violence, the, the highest echelon of the saints, the martyrs, and we've got the inflicting of violence through Christian soldiers. So the book is trying to make sense of that paradox. Is it a paradox that we can make sense of, or is it more of a contradiction, the way that some in the pacifist camp um, might think? As you already um, indicated with your introduction, I think that there is a way to make sense of it, uh, but I guess we'll, we'll continue talking about that.
0: All right. And so how do you define martyrdom and could you talk about its origins and particularly you distinguish between martyrdom of confession and martyrdom of passion and action?
1: Yeah, so martyrdom in general, I would define as a death that offers a witness to Christ. A death that somehow offers a witness to the meaning of Jesus Christ and the the life of following him. You know, as you as you know, from reading the book, the the Greek language from the New Testament of Martus is language taken from the courtroom of the ancient world It has to do with witness and testimony. So the New Testament talks about Martus Marturia as witness to Jesus the way you know the witness to Jesus that Christians make through the way they live their lives. But then there are also indications in the New Testament that a life lived for Jesus also can extend to the way that one dies for Jesus. You know, we see that especially in, in the book of Revelation. But the early church confronted a lot of persecution. You know, there were times when, um, Christians were You know, they they faced a lot of hostility simply for the fact that they were Christian and therefore they refused to do certain things that were asked of them or required of them in the Roman context. So this language of witness and testimony from the New Testament really focused on life gets applied more and more to a death for Christ in the early church. It becomes kind of a technical term of sorts, someone who dies for their confession of Christ. And in more recent decades the christian church has become more aware of um, the fact that there are other ways in which christians are brought by their faith to an untimely death it's not just for being christian we could think of those as martyrs of confession but also sometimes the actions that a christian chooses to take um, can bring them to an untimely death so i sometimes in the book i talk about Martyrs of Christian Action, so Martyrs of Christian Confession and Martyrs of Christian Action with someone like Oscar Romero, the Salvadoran Archbishop, as one example. You know, he takes on some of the of the powers of repression and death in his society and is assassinated for it. Or someone like Maximilian Kolba in Auschwitz, the Polish Franciscan priest who volunteers to die in the place of another prisoner. So they're doing certain things out of faithfulness to Christ that end up leading to their deaths. So I, I think those are just different forms of witness to the way of Jesus Christ, which is why we are inclined to use the language of martyrdom to talk about them.
0: All right. And throughout the book, you keep coming back to six criteria for martyrdom. So uh, what all is involved there? What are the essential points of that?
1: Yeah, one of the things I noticed, Dennis, when I started doing research on martyrdom is I started to hear the language in places other than theology. You know, I remember reading an article, this was years and years ago, talking about how, you know, Lance Armstrong, when he got, you know, caught for using performance enhancing drugs, was sort of portraying himself as a martyr. Hmm. Or we'll sometimes talk about someone who has a martyr complex because of the way that they, They kind of relish the sense that they're being mistreated. And then there's the fact that, you know, other religious traditions other than Christianity also can use the language of martyrdom. So I became more convinced that to make theological use, you know, careful theological use of the notion of martyrdom requires us to be pretty clear on what its main meaning is in Christianity. And so, in the book, I tried to develop some markers or criteria of martyrdom. And as you mentioned, there there are six of them. I mean, I'm not necessarily uh, you know, wedded to the idea of there being six, but these were just six that struck me as important that I kept coming back to. and I don't know that your uh, your viewers here necessarily want to hear about all six of them, but the gist of them is that a Christian martyr. notice I say Christian martyr is someone who dies for something integral to Christian faith. There's also what a former student of mine called the opt-out clause. A Christian martyr is someone who could have opted out of death by doing what the Romans wanted you to do, or by not persecuting the Salvadoran forces of death, as vociferously. But they didn't opt out. And also other things like how self-renunciation, a sense of facing God... Of, you know, in heading towards death. Those are also some of the markers or criteria of martyrdom that I think help us to have some guardrails on when we're talking about Christian martyrdom as opposed to certain other conceptions. Does that make sense?
0: Sure. All righty. And uh, let's go ahead and move on to pacifism. So you, you've got some a fair amount of time spent on defining it and its uh, biblical basis. Could you say more about that? Yeah,
1: you know, one of the things that I hope in this book, and therefore in this conversation is that people like you, who identify as Christian pacifists, will be able to recognize themselves in the descriptions that someone like, like me makes of pacifism, even though I land on a different position, you know, as a Christian. So i'll be curious to hear from you in a minute whether you think that i've missed something or you know whether there's more to it that i'm not you know quite touching on but i guess in pretty simple terms i see christian pacifism as the view that the christian is called to a life of nonviolence or a life of peaceableness and that that's clearly not passive in the sense of passivity just allowing yourself to be acted upon it's a life of action towards peace right, rather than resorting to violence. So I think the core of Christian pacifism would be that in the Christian life, there is no sanction for violence in the life of the Christian. So if if we were to talk about what the, the main biblical argument is for it, I think we could say it's it's Jesus' teaching primarily and also his example. In particular, the Sermon on the Mount. That's something I keep coming back to in the book because I really do see that as the heartbeat of Christian pacifism. You turn the other cheek, do good to those who persecute you, love your enemy. And there are lots of things that we could add, but I think that's really at the core of it. The you know, the Christian pacifist senses that they're called to follow Jesus in that regard. Uh, to take those, what I call in the book, harder lines of the Sermon on the Mount, quite directly and straightforwardly. And I I will probably talk about this as we go. But, uh, you know, if that's the core biblical argument for pacifism, it also could be kind of the soft spot for the just, just war perspective. That's why I think the just war perspective needs to to take that on. But before we talk more about that, I'm kind of curious. What's your reaction to my description of of pacifism?
0: Well, yeah, I certainly agree with all that. And violence has to be defined. Is it just lethal violence that pacifists are opposed to? Are are there any points where we use non-lethal force? And I would say yes. Um, But also, I think the notion of Christ as Messiah, as King, totally turns on its head worldly notions of what it means to be a king, what it means to be a sovereign of a people, he comes as a king to die, which is highly unusual. The king is the most protected person in the kingdom, and he freely gives himself up to a torturous death and says, "Ask his followers, take up your cross like me, be willing to die like me." So that um, that that figures in strongly also for me. But we'll we'll get into more details about the strengths and weaknesses of pacifism and all that. Great. So uh, you take some time then with uh, talking about how pacifism was understood and practiced um, both in the early church and with Anabaptists. Could you go into some detail about that?
1: With both of those movements, the early church and the Anabaptist movement in the time of the Reformation, 16th, early 17th century, we're talking about Christians that are, that find themselves as minority groups uh, in situations where there's a lot of hostility directed toward them by the the powers, the powers that be, whether it's the Romans or the official governments of places like, uh, you know, what we would call Germany today or England or wherever in Europe of the 16th century. So perhaps one, um, One of the things that feeds the pacifism of those um, points in history is the fact that resistance was kind of futile. Now, think of the power of the Roman Empire in contrast to the rather small, powerless nature of the early Christian movement. But to focus just on, you know, resistance being futile could give you the impression that the pacifism of those groups was more A matter of having few other options, when I actually think it was more principled. And I think many of the Christians in those situations would hear what you just said a couple of minutes ago about how the kingship of Christ turns uh, the ways of the world on their head, and they would agree with that. I think really the main feeder of pacifism, Christian pacifism in those times, the more principled reasons, is there a sense that the Christian life should look significantly different than the ways of the world around them? You know, the Sermon on the Mount, but also the example of Jesus or kind of a sense of the the way of Christ is what's feeding that.
0: All right. And can you give some specific examples then of, say, what the early fathers taught on the on the subject?
1: Sure, the early fathers are kind of interesting in the sense that most of them are probably what we would describe as pacifist although you know there's some debate in the scholarly community about the reasons why one of the clear reasons why is that they sensed that being part of the roman military required um, religious practices that they took to be idolatrous whether that's sacrificing to the emperor or other symbols of Roman religious allegiance, the earliest Christians were, were not comfortable with that because they thought that it was idolatry. It was to give honor to, um, give, to give religious honor to beings other than the one true creator God. So they said no. So in a lot of the, the early Christian fathers, what you have is reflections on how the things that soldiers were called to do were just not permissible for the Christians. And oftentimes they're talking about more, what we would think of today as more religious things. And at least in my reading of some of the sources, I don't see as much about as many mentions of violence there as we might expect. But at the same time, so I would say it's the religious obligations of Roman military life that they're first and foremost opposed to. But then there are also times when they will mention things like you know, how the use of the sword is something that Christ um, commanded his followers not to participate in, or sometimes um, either quotations of or allusions to the Sermon on the Mount. But, you know, I think there's a lot of things going on there in the the, the trend in the early church towards what we would describe today as a pacifist approach to the, the ethics of violence.
0: Right. And you also have the interpretation of Psalms or any other passages in the Old Testament having to do with warfare were always spiritualized by the fathers. But then after Constantine, it's like, no, we're taking these literally. It's also interesting that Lactantius gave the most explicit prohibition of violence and warfare of any writer that I've seen. However, after Constantine, he totally changed his tune. It's like now that the emperor and the empire is on our side, he gave a just war interpretation. So there's there's, fascinating stuff going on there.
1: Yeah, it is fascinating. And at moments where we emphasize the abruptness of that shift, it probably should lead Christians to scratch our heads a little bit and to wonder whether um, a significantly wrong turn was made at that moment in history. I think there are some other examples that we could talk about where, you know, there had been this question about social responsibility that had been um, weighing upon Christians for a long time, you know, for the first couple of centuries. And perhaps because they had been wrestling with that and had encountered Roman soldiers who converted to Christ but remained soldiers, there are other folks around the time of Constantine that, that take that shift more in stride. It's it's more of a shift than an about face. That is one of those things that historians and to some extent theologians are, have been arguing about for a long time is what to make sense of this shift in the early church from Christianity as this persecuted movement where many public figures would best be described as pacifist in in their approach to one where Christianity, I mean, the cross gets put on the shields and the emblems of the Roman army, you know, pretty quickly. So, I mean, I, I think that's something that, even as someone in the just war camp, I'm willing to to acknowledge that. Hmm, there's some stuff there we need, really need to ponder if we're. Could be
0: a problem here, right? Yeah. All right. And what was it? Um, can you say more about what distinguished the Anabaptists? Um, From the magisterial reformers, it wasn't just pacifism, but what did it grow out of?
1: Yeah, I would say the pacifism was connected to something a bit broader. The sense that the Christian community needed to live according to its own way of doing things. So there was this sense of separation or distinctiveness required for the Christian community in contrast to the ways of the state or the ways of the broader society. So you could, I guess we could call that a form of separatism. And that was also related to something else that we see written into the very label Anabaptist. The, You know, this opposition to infant baptism, in part because infant baptism was seen to lead to kind of nominal Christianity. People are baptized when they're, when they're born, when they're babies, before they know anything about it. And that leads to this sort of, I don't know, um, not all that ardent form of living the Christian life. That's probably not the most delicate way that one could say that, but I think you see the point that I'm getting at. So the sense that being a Christian is something that that's heavier, requires someone's choice requires the will of the person to um, opt into the life of following Jesus and all the risks and costs associated with it, including, sadly, in the case of many Ab- Anabaptists in the 16th and 17th century, martyrdom. So once again, there's a lot of things going on there.
0: Right. And at the time, too, being baptized was also apparently synonymous with becoming a citizen, Uh So it was tied to nationalism and uh, making yourself available to whatever the state dictated.
1: Yeah, so Christendom, you know, in the time. To be a Christian was basically to be a citizen and to be a citizen was to be a Christian. And that could lead, lead to problematic forms of both of those identities. And the Anabaptists, I think, kind of saw something problematic there that they wanted to avoid. And that fed you know that was one of the the things that fed their approach to baptism. The other one I think was just that they read the New Testament and they thought that there was better evidence for what we would today call believers' baptism rather than infant baptism
0: all right then, and you also tie in your six criteria of martyrdom to pacifism, so what is key there for us to understand, yeah.
1: So, at the end of chapter 2, which talks about Anabaptist martyrologies and kind of the, the, the pacifist argument, I return to the criteria of martyrdom. Basically, to say that if pacifism is true, if that's the way of life that the New Testament or the Bible as a whole, but the New Testament in particular, if that's the life that Christ calls us to, then we would need to be a little more specific in some of the criteria of martyrdom. We would need to add that that distinctiveness of faith that the Christian martyr dies for includes nonviolence. It includes a refusal to give in to the the world's coercive, lethal ways of being. Now, in the end, I, I don't add that to the criteria of martyrdom that I end up with at the end of the book. You know, for reasons that the book explains, but do you think there's an important lesson that even just war Christians can draw from that, that there really does need to be something distinctive, something genuinely uh, self-renouncing, self-denying about the Christian way of life in order for that way of life when it leads to premature death to be labeled
0: martyrdom. And how would you sum up the strengths and weaknesses of Christian pacifism?
1: Yeah, the strengths and weaknesses. I think on the strength side, there's a straightforwardness there in relation to certain aspects of the New Testament. There's the teaching of Jesus, in particular, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 in particular, uh, there are some of the things that you mentioned earlier about this sense that if we look at the way of life of Jesus, the way he lived for the kingdom, we see that there's this the power dynamics of the world are turned on their head. So I think there's something intuitively persuasive about Christian pacifism's call for believers to live in a radically different way than the world. You know, the way of the world So often relies on, on power, on threat, on coercion and on force. With Jesus, we see something different going on. Christian pacifism at its best tries to follow, follow suit. In terms of weaknesses, because that was part of your question too. You're not just looking for strength since that's the view you're, you're inclined towards, right? Yes. I mean, I think, There are situations that we can think of in life where the call to nonviolence seems hard or even unrealistic. You might think of a situation where a family member or a loved one that we are responsible for is threatened in a dire way. And we have the power to do something, even if it involves harming the person who's trying to victimize them. I think there's something almost instinctive in us that suggests that using violence in a case like that is different than using violence simply with the aim of harming someone or getting something for yourself
0: and you call that secondary violence right
1: yeah i distinguish between first order violence which is sort of aggression takes lots of forms you know russia um assault And then second order violence is responsive violence, which at its best is a violence that is intended to defend or repair rather than to harm. You know, so speaking of situations where pacifism doesn't just doesn't seem to work, that's putting it really crassly, but at least it gets the point across. I think what's been going on in Ukraine for the past hundred plus days is is an example of kind of the sensibility that many non-pacifists would point to as part of their reasoning, uh, part of the reasoning that takes them more in a just war direction. But I think biblically, you know, there's the fact that there are points in the Christian canon where God appears to use violence for good ends, that the fact that Jesus doesn't tell soldier converts to him to change their jobs. And then in a really broad sense of, a, you know, as a principle, there's this command to protect the widow and the orphan. And I don't take that literally meaning just the widow and just the orphan, but a sense of protecting the vulnerable. I think that's one of the other things that flows into the just war mentality that there are times when aggression is so egregious that the only way to protect the vulnerable is by means of the sword.
0: Right. And I would totally agree. I would, that's what I would always consider the essential weakness of pacifism. Certainly pacifistic, nonviolent resistance has been very effective in certain historical situations. And however, there's others, Hitler's Germany or Stalin's Russia, where the Soviet Union, were probably not at all. Um, It's interesting to me, though, and I'd like to hear your reflection on this, that uh, along with that, the strongest objection we hear about the very existence of God is that it's impossible for God to be both all-powerful and all good because otherwise there'd be how can you account for the evil in the world so if we you know we say God does exist and God does allow all this evil so i'd say likewise um to me, that points to the truth of pacifism. It's more in the character of God is that sometimes is that we can't prevent that evil.
1: Yeah, that that's an interesting approach that I haven't quite thought about in those terms. I think there's a there's a certain distance of what you're saying where the just war advocate would agree. You know, well, I guess we'll probably talk about this next when we get into the logic of just war thinking, but the just war approach does not say that the, the just person can do whatever it takes to stop evil or to stop first order violence from happening. There are limits, there's, there are restraints, things like that. I, I guess it's more a, a difference of opinion over the point at which we have to acknowledge that there are times when we have to um, leave certain things to God and realize that our own powers are not up to the task.
0: All right. So let's go ahead and define just war. And what is your scriptural basis for it?
1: Yeah, defining the just war. uh, Sometimes scholars will say that in a more technical sense, we should talk about it as justified war.
0: Hmm.
1: War not so much that is justice or is just in a really full sense, but war that is justified as a response to very serious aggression. But in a broad sense, it would be choosing to wage war and then waging war in ways that are consistent with justice. And you, you know, from reading through the book and probably from your study of the ethics of war, um, that the just war tradition is sometimes broken down into two main sets of considerations. First of all, considerations regarding to the, the decision to go to war. Or not. And then secondly, decisions about how to fight with what spirit and with what weapons to fight.
0: There's and what are some... the terms for those two?
1: Yeah, I mean, over the last hundred or so years, there have been some Latin terms that crop up occasionally. There's the the justice ad bellum, the question of going to war. And then there's the justice in bellow while you're fighting. So on the yeah. ad bellum side, I mean. I thought you were gonna want me to avoid some of the Latin terms.
0: There. Oh, no, no. Bring in the foreign language for sure.
1: Yeah, some of my students don't always think that way. <laughs> but on the ad bellum side, there are thing, considerations like just cause. You know, that there is a serious aggression that needs to be responded to. Otherwise, the possibility of order, justice, and flourishing in society will, you know, either be destroyed or, or threatened. There's right intention, you know, that war, if you're going to go to war, that needs to be with the aim of reestablishing a just peace, not, you know, gaining more territory for yourself or your country or other forms of gain. So things like that, you know, I don't know that we need to talk about all of the considerations that typically fall under that ad bellum category, but another one of them that's important enough that it definitely needs to be mentioned is that It's the responsibility of the sovereign of a nation to make that decision. And that could look different under different polities, you know, under democratic regimes, it might look a little different than a totalitarian authoritarian regime, but that it's the responsibility of the sovereign to discern whether there is a just cause, you know, serious just cause. And then also to, if deciding to go to war, make sure that the, you know, the intention is right in doing so.
0: But the thing that gets the most press is probably related to civilian casualties.
1: And that takes us to the in side of things. So it would be very possible for a country to go to war um, legitimately, responding to an act of injustice, an act of aggression, but then to be totally indiscriminate in the way they fight. The just war tradition would t- declare that to be wrong. And one of the key considerations of the in bellow side of things is non-combatant immunity which includes civilians but it also includes prisoners of war but also things at more of a attitudinal level like right intention you know the soldier both those who are commanding the fighting and those who are actually doing the fighting are called not to fight with hate or vengefulness in their their hearts and their kind of their spirit of fighting, but in a way that perhaps strangely even respects the enemy, because enemy soldiers also bear the image of God and are loved by Jesus Christ. So, you know, it's the ad bellum and the in bellow. That's the main way that the tradition breaks down as we analyze it. You know, Dennis, you also asked you the second part of your question is probably the hardest of all the scriptural basis for it. I would say that it's probably more of a the, the basis for it is probably more philosophical and theological than directly biblical you know it's more the, the discernment that life in the world is a good thing that is worth protecting Aggreton, uh, aggression threatens it um and then there might be passages of scripture like the widows and orphans um, passage or recurring command that I talked about a few minutes ago that we could bring in or the fact that Jesus doesn't command soldiers to turn over their weapons when they you know, turn their hearts to him.
0: It is so interesting, probably, though, that the soldiers he's referring to are occupying soldiers. Yeah. They are the enemy.
1: Yeah, that that's true. I guess I just think and I you know this is not an original thought of mine I mean there are a number of scholars who point this out but you would think that if pacifism was one of those sort of absolute requirements of the life of discipleship that we would get a bit more of a sense of that in the way that Jesus interacts with soldiers I mean it's kind of a you know it wouldn't be an argument that would ever work by itself that's one of right. those sort of supporting lines of argument from Scripture.
0: Right. And if pacifists are honest, we will admit to being frustrated over that.
1: Yeah. Honesty, it's, all, it's always good.
0: It seems to me, um, as a pacifist, uh, a strong argument, too, is that clearly in the Old Testament, God used warfare. And yet with the New Testament, we don't really see a really clear express expressed um, renunciation of that. Um, the love your enemy and all that sort of thing can be relativized, but if, if it's not clearly revoked like other things in the Old Testament are, then we are assume, can assume it's to be maintained. So I think there's an argument there. I mean, I, I don't think it's ultimately convincing, of course, but sure. I think there is something there.
1: Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's a good point. And very honest of you, even to bring that up, to help me try to articulate my own argument. I mean, I think one of the dangers, uh, it's clearly not something that you're lapsing into, but one of the dangers is that we end up pitting the God of the Old Testament against the God of the New Testament as revealed by Jesus. You know, the one is, you know, the Old Testament God uses war and vengefulness and all of that, right. but then Jesus is all about um, forgiveness, love, right. mercy, now, that's a little too neat and tidy. Oh,
0: well, Marcion made that mistake, and a lot yeah. of Christians tend to fall into that error still.
1: Yeah. So I think you're an example of someone articulating a pacifist point of view that's clearly aware of that problem and trying to avoid that. And I think then the just war the just war approach is, is leaning into continuity just in the other direction.
0: Right. All right, so um, let's dig into the logic of just war. You spent a lot of time on that talking about reality of sin, Christian love, nature and varieties of violence, and the life and ethics of Jesus.
1: Yeah, I think the, the, the core, well, is there a core? Sin, well, one of the fruits of sin is aggression in God's good world. Aggression that seriously threatens the well-being of people, of vulnerable people in the world. That's the kind of violence that we've already talked about as first-order violence. So I think the just war approach is kind of energized in part by this sense that if aggression is left unchecked, it will lead to extremely bad consequences for for the world that God created and the world that God loves. But love comes into the picture um, as one of the motivating factors for, uh, for a person to fight using second order violence to defend society, to defend the possibility of, of everyday life of having children, of children going to school of, you know, people growing old. Love isn't, in part, at least what motivates the decision to fight to preserve potential victims or actual victims from the, the tyranny that is a, that is brought by aggression. But in the just war tradition, love is also the motivating factor for restraining fighting. For attempting to fight in ways that are consistent with justice in a in a broad sense. Um, Rather than it just being a a kind of no holds barred, total war um, that will just take down anything in its way. So love even for the enemy. So that's one of the ways that the just war tradition tries to uh, bring in Jesus' call to love our enemy. Maybe a kind of a weird way or at least a way that I think would. I'm someone who's never fought, I've never served as a law enforcement officer, I've never served as a soldier, I've been an academic most of my life, so it's easy for me to talk about this, while also recognizing that there's a bit of a gap between what I'm talking about and what it must be like to actually experience this sort of thing, but to fight against someone who either is an aggressor or is a tool of aggression, in a way that nevertheless loves him or her, as the enemy that Christ calls us to love. I mean, I think that's probably one of the trickiest aspects of what we sometimes talk about is the spirituality of the just war, from a Christian standpoint.
0: All right. So, and can you say more about varieties of violence? Really, how you define it, and because, um, of course, there's whether it's uh, lethal, lethal or non-lethal it can be make a huge difference yeah I guess I don't
1: I, I think you're right um, violence lethal violence is of a, a sort of different order
0: we're talking and about violence secondary violence here to prevent yeah, so, aggressive violence
1: yeah so there's aggressive violence there's you know first order violence the kind of violence that antagonizes that it tends to ha- intends to harm or or is used for the purpose of enriching um, a group or enlarging their territory. I mean, I think it's pretty clear, especially from a Christian standpoint, that that's that's the kind of violence that is condemned by by scripture, by theological teaching. So when when we're arguing about whether violence is ever permissible for the Christian, we're talking about whether second-order violence, that responsive violence, at its best, reparative violence is ever justified. Now, second order violence can sometimes take the form of this hopeless cry of despair. Um, folks lashing out because um, there's really little else to do given what faces them in life. The just war tradition would say that that That's perhaps understandable, but it's more of an expression of vengefulness. Than of an attempt uh, towards repair. So it's really that form of second order violence that is. Is intended to restore just peace. That's the sort of violence that the just war tradition. Believes can be justified. There might be times when it's not justified. But there may be there are times when it is justified. So, I mean, that, we have to be very careful that just word tradition does not give its blessing to violence in all of its many, many forms. And it's okay. also, I think at its best, pretty attuned to the problems of violence, including the problems of second order violence that they can spiral into, you know, what could start out as well-intentioned, justified violence can easily um, kind of creep towards expressions of vengefulness, or can end up harming uh, the civilian, the non-combatant. So I, I think at its best, the just war tradition is pretty sober-minded about about violence.
0: All right, and I really appreciate that you you put a lot of emphasis on that the just war tradition is not about just justifying violence, but it's about restraining it. Um, So it seems to me that if I was going to defend just war, as a Christian, as a spirit-filled believer, there are situations, um, say you're in enemy territory. You're not just trying to kill everybody you can. You're not even necessarily trying to kill every soldier you can. Maybe some of those soldiers are ready to surrender. Maybe some of those soldiers on the other side really don't want to do what they're doing. So How do we know it it would come from the spirit? It would have to be the spirit leading us to kill the person that God is calling us to kill. And it would have to be spirit empowered. This is not on our strength, but this is an act of God working through us. And so to me, unless we're willing to use that sort of language, spirit directed killing, spirit empowered killing, then I don't see how it can be theologically justified. Any thoughts?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a good point and you're really putting your finger on one of the tensions of the just war tradition. My initial instinct to what you were saying is to shy away a little bit, you know, to shy away from that language of spirit led or spirit empowered killing. And I'll get back to why in just a second. Yeah, you can probably already tell why. Um, I definitely think you're right when you're talking about how it would be the nudges of the spirit or sort of the spirit-led life of discipline in Christian faith as a disciple that would be absolutely required for the Christian soldier to bring that restraint and discernment onto the battlefield, especially given just the pressures and the frenzy of the battlefield. You know, there has to be that that grace and action of the spirit in order to help the person who could quite understandably get carried away with the emotions and the, the pain and the fervor of the battlefield.
0: And also what his compatriots are doing that have no restraint.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there's even, I mean, there's a lot, there's examples of this in war memoirs, but also novels and film of the difficulty of, say, one soldier having to stand up, to another soldier on the same side to say, no, we can't do that. Or, no, you shouldn't do that. Or, no, I won't do that. Or to command, I mean, the yeah, to command, if you're a, an officer, to command your men to exercise that restraint in the way they are carrying out their mission. But cycling back to the, the spirit-empowered killing, I guess one of the reasons why I, I might shy away from that a little bit is just because, oh, boy, that. There's just something strange about using that language. And even though I'm defending the just war tradition, I'm I think there's something about the intuitive strangeness of that that should lead me to scratch my head a little bit. But also, I think because. Christians can make well warriors, but even Christian warriors can also make mistakes. There are times when we might think that we are being led by the spirit. But it can also be our own sinfulness that deludes us into thinking that so i guess i have an easier time and maybe this is just too much of an easy out i have an easier time acknowledging the spirit's role in enabling the christian soldier to do good even on the battlefield than on this and i want to shy away from the possibility of um ascribing to the spirit possible misdeeds on the part of Christians, but I, I think we're always we're, we're always doing that kind of juggling act in theology, even beyond questions of fighting, um, because, you know, that's one of the ways that we deal with the problem of evil is by saying that, you know, the source of all good in the world is God. It's not us primarily doing it, but the source of evil in the world is ultimately human freedom misdirected. Do you see why I'm shying away from that?
0: Isn't part of it, though, um, according to a certain reading of Romans 13, it's not about the Spirit leading or empowering us. It's about God who has established the authorities um, to govern and to use the sword, whether it's in police action or in warfare. So it's God through them, and our um, killing in that context is under that heading. So it's not really our responsibility in a sense, because God has empowered and established the governing authorities. So it's not on us. Maybe it's on our commanding officers, but it's really on the king.
1: Yeah, I think there's something right about that. That can also be too much of an easy out, that it's God who has ordained this, this office of the sword. Uh, so what we do in if I'm a police officer or a soldier, what I do um, is the responsibility of of the state or it's the responsibility of of God who ordained the state. I do think at the level of decisions and actions, we're responsible. We expect warriors, we expect police officers to follow the rules of engagement. And we think that there are times when they ought to be held accountable when they don't. So I do think there's a place for agency there that prevents us from completely throwing up our hands and saying, well, it's not really my responsibility.
0: We can't just say, I was just following orders. Yeah. The world doesn't accept that. Yeah. All right. Could you um, you look at several thinkers um, throughout the just war tradition that you see as defending that? Um, could you spend a little time with Augustine, Bonhoeffer, and Niebuhr?
1: Sure. I mean, with Augustine... One of the things that we get from him is some early just war reflections that the Christian church has drawn upon in developing its moral reflection on this particular problem of aggression and how to respond to it. In a broader sense, Augustine gives us this vision of two cities, of the city of God, the way that the world uh, was meant to be and the way that it will be in contrast to the world under the power of sin the the earthly city versus the heavenly city and augustine is quite powerful in the way he he explains the dynamics of the world of history as a kind of overlap of those two cities we live in that overlap where we see sin and aggression around us and we even sense sin and aggression in our own lives and our own hearts but the christian church through Christ's grace, through the power of the spirit, is able to witness to the city of God through the way that we live in that overlap. And you know, for someone like Augustine, that includes the acknowledgement that uh, we may at times need to testify to the good of the city of God by means of tools that are part of the city of the world. That's in a part what's going on. That's in part what's going on with a just war you're using certain tools that are not going to be part of ultimate heavenly existence in order in the quest for better justice not perfect justice. Better order not perfect order in the world that we inhabit right now. So I think there's a sense in which Augustine provides in a way a kind of worldview within which. Where reasoning can make some
0: sense. So with Augustine, though, it seems strange that um, just war people would use him. I mean, because he goes so far as to defend just war or even torture um, in regard to heresy, in regard to keeping heresy under wraps.
1: Yeah, so I, I think we'd have to be careful to just take what Augustine says and plop it right down in our contemporary context. He's an early articulator of some just war principles and as you just pointed out we have to be a little careful about labeling that just war in the same sense that we tend to think about it today because you're right he's many of his reflections. Have to do with with the threat or what he perceived as the threat of certain heretical movements in the society of his day. So. I mean that that gets a little closer to the category of holy war, but at the same time, he he gives us some early reflections on some of the criteria, or the considerations, as I said earlier, of um, just fighting the way they are understood later on in the tradition.
0: Okay, so how about Bonhoeffer and then Niebuhr?
1: Well, let me talk about Niebuhr first, and then and then Bonhoeffer. I think with Niebuhr, there's um, a powerful sense of Sin. Sin as what leads to aggression and needs to be restrained. But also this powerful sense that even the just warrior, if you don't mind me using that that term just for convenience, even the just warrior is a sinner. So with Niebuhr, there are these powerful warnings against seeing even the just war as this. This battle of good. You know, clear, um, pure good against evil. For someone like Niebuhr, the, the restraint that's required for fighting appropriately is in part funded by this sense that even my own side is sinful. Even I am sinful and therefore I need to see myself fighting against fellow sinners. So there's a kind of a restraining function there. With Bonhoeffer. Mainly what I draw from Bonhoeffer is his sense of the murkiness of the world that we live in. He uses the language, and I, I, I referred to it a number of times in the book, of the moral twilight. That when we're presented with the challenges of the world, the hard decisions of life in the world, and of course he has in mind his own um, role in the resist the Nazi or the, the resistance movement in Germany his own question about what to do about Hitler. You know, I don't want to get directly into that, but for him, that comes out in the form of talking about how principles, clear cut principles or guidelines only get us so far in the moral life. Ultimately, the Christian has to venture a choice, a choice um, in discipleship while also throwing ourselves upon the mercy of Christ. So for for someone like Bonhoeffer, and I think he might go a little too far in this. He might give the impression that principles really don't have a place in the moral reasoning of our lives, but he at least um, quite eloquently um, gives language for us to acknowledge the hard choices, the difficult decisions, The fact that things are often not clear-cut all of those things i think are just part of our lives definitely part of our our social world you know so what 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 do we do about russia's aggression in a situation where ukrainians are suffering egregiously but yet there's this threat of nuclear weapons you know that that makes it unclear i mean oftentimes in in the past you might think well there's this naked act of aggression so the just war thing to do would be to go in and defend but if that could spiral into this broader conflict that could have even worse devastating consequences for the world that becomes a harder call to make so bonhoeffer's language of twilight and then i i sometimes like putting it in terms of tragedy or the tragic dimension of christian existence in the world Where it's not just an obvious good that we go out and do, but more of a partial good that we're striving for in ways, well, well in ways that reflect our own sinfulness, but also just reflect the limitations of of knowledge, of possibilities, of all of those sorts of things in the world.
0: All right, then. And how would you describe, uh, to sum up, the strengths and weaknesses of just war?
1: well strengths and weaknesses i think the way that the strengths game works with just war is that we sometimes point to situations where it seems like the the obvious thing to do is to intervene if let's say one of my kids was still young and being threatened by someone else i would sense this obligation to intervene on behalf of them even if it required me to do violence to someone who was trying to harm them and at that point, I don't know that the lethal versus non-lethal violence distinction is going to get us that far. It, maybe it would. I mean, but even in just war thinking, less serious violence is to be preferred over the more serious violence. Or, you know, what do you do about Hitler in the 19, you know, late 1930s and early 1940s? What do you do about, you know, aggression that is unleashed into the world harming people we certainly shouldn't just let it happen we have to do something i think that instinct is is one of the main strengths of the just war tradition i also think that it's 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 serious in its awareness of the spiraling of violence the need for second order violence to have some checks and balances on it some restraint on it lest it just viral into new new forms of aggression that just take the world in a more abysmal direction. So, you know, those would be a few of the strengths that would come to my mind. In terms of weaknesses, I think it has a slightly harder time with the Sermon on the Mount, as we've already talked about. So in, in a way we can take our pacifism discussion and kind of invert some of the strengths and weaknesses as we talk here about the strengths and weaknesses of the just war tradition. You know, I think that the point that John Howard Yoder makes in his book, When War is Unjust, should be food for thought for those on the just war side of things. You know, there are fewer instances in history that we can point to of just war principles leading people not to fight or restraining the way they fight. I mean, I I don't totally buy his argument, but I think there's something there that those who are on the the just war side of the discussion need to pay attention to. I mean, maybe the restraint that we talk so much about in just war reasoning isn't quite as powerful as we would like to believe.
0: Right. And also it seems to me is that uh, the government, along with the use of the media, are experts. It's their job to figure out how to manipulate the greater public, as well as the church being part of the nation, to believe that every war that they deem worthy of fighting is a just war. And they spent a lot of time on that, often before actually launching an attack, say, on Iraq. And that's... it's. And how do you really know? How do you really have the necessary intelligence to determine whether a war is just. Because if it rests on the sovereign, well, he's got the sovereign's got a very different agenda than the church with our mission yeah. of preaching the gospel and living like Christ. So it seems to me the sovereign can do whatever he wants, but ultimately it's the church that needs to decide if this war is just before we send our 18-year-olds off to another country.
1: That's a good point. I mean, first of all, in the government... I mean I think there's an interesting tension there, because we can come up with so many examples of governments using propaganda messages in order to convey this message to, their, to the public or to the world that something is justified, that something is necessary, when in fact, it was a decision to use military force, you know for other reasons, because it was easier because it you know whatever the case might be. But at the same time those in certain positions in government do have access to information about things that are going on in the world that us normal civilians don't have so no i think that's one of the reasons why the tradition says well it's the sovereign that has to make the decision because it's the it's the sovereign's responsibility to protect the public good and the sovereign is likely to have a fuller picture of things
0: they have access to the knowledge. On the other hand, they're notoriously notoriously dishonest.
1: Yeah. So I think if you found yourself in a government, and some people might think this is true about the United States, but if you find yourself in a government that you can't trust, I think it would be really hard to say, well, I'm going to be a soldier because you may be commanded to go fight for a cause that is proclaimed as just, but may not in fact be. So, I mean, I think that's one of the, you know, with with the breakdown of trust in government and even trust in sort of the social fabric, that becomes a really hard problem for the whole question of fighting justly. But, you know, back to your question about 18-year-olds in the church, you know, there's conscientious objection. Most Western governments, at least the United States government, only have policies in place for what we could call a sort of broad, pacifist, comprehensive or a conscientious objection to military service.
0: Right. Like, let, let's say based there's a, on the individual war.
1: Yeah, it has to be. You're against war in general. If that's the case and there's a draft, then the United States government would give me alternative service as opposed to forcing me to fight or throwing me into prison for not fighting. But most in most church traditions that are on the just war side of things will also say that if you want us to be serious about, about this, you need to give us the possibility of selective conscientious objection. We need to be able to say, this conflict doesn't quite pass the bar of justice. We're not going to send our 18 year olds to fight. Because, well, well, and then along with that would be the possibility of saying, this does pass the bar. So we think this is clearly justified. So we are willing to sort of promote fighting in our 18-year-olds. And I have a 19-year-old kid. So this whole thing about sending 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds to fight also sends a chill through me. So I'm, you know, we're speaking in more of a theoretical vein here, but we should also recognize that we're talking about some very serious stuff that shapes people's lives that that even when they're fighting rightly can also have such a traumatic effect on people's lives. So, you know, there's discernment involved and the church, as you're suggesting in your question, needs to play a role in guiding its its members to think clearly and Christianly about whether using second order violence is the right thing to do in particular circumstances. While also discipling people so that if they end up fighting, they have been trained in such a way that they will be able to show that restraint and even that love for enemy in the way that they fight.
0: Right, because it seems to me in the peace church tradition, we do not support this. We encourage you to be a conscientious objector. We can't bless you going off to war. And in the just war tradition, well, you've been drafted or you volunteered, you're being called here. Well, we we bless you, we pray for you. But there doesn't really seem to be structures set up for how do we discern this together? Is it just a local congregation? Is it denominational? Are there networks of churches? Who are the experts we bring in to discern this? How do we work with the families? How do we counsel the 18-year-olds? It seems like it's like, uh, that's too messy. That's too difficult. We'll just pray for you and bless you.
1: Yeah, I think you're right that, that doing that in a more serious way requires more in-depth engagement in the question and more proactive engagement in the questions about what's going on in the world. You know, what's our responsibility as you know, citizens of the city of God and also citizens of, of this world? You know that's not one of those things that you can just decide. Oh, you're going to do it right when a new conflict arises. It requires that proactive engagement, discipleship, conversation um, within communities, but also across communities. So I, th- I think that's a big challenge. And you know, you're you're working in a church. I, I hope that that's the sort of thing that that you can you could try to do in your community.
0: So uh, in your last chapter, you talk about restraining the necessities of realism. So can you say more about that?
1: Yeah, so realism is a broad category, a way of talking about how the reality of the world, including the reality of aggression in the world, may sometimes require us to do things that we would rather not do to use violence to stop further harm from happening. One of the terms that sometimes is used in that tradition, including in the just war expressions of it is necessity. You should only fight when that's necessary, but when when there is serious aggression up and running in the world, it is necessary to fight. There I've used the word necessity in a couple of different ways in adjacent sentences so we can start to see the slipperiness of it. Another trend related to that is that sometimes necessity is used to baptize, as it were, breaking the rules of just fighting. Well, we have to win, and the only way for us to win is to start slaughtering civilians, so it's necessary for us to do that. You kind of take refuge in necessity. I think that's philosophically problematic. It's definitely theologically problematic. So that's what I'm trying to get at with that language of restraining the necessities of realism. We have to realize that most of the time it is possible for war to be waged in ways that protect civilians. You know, and maybe it's not my place to say this, but it's possible to wage war in a way that doesn't dehumanize the enemy. So we need to av- Avoid letting this language of necessity um, just help us creep further and further and further into the cycle of deepening violence and aggression.
0: Right, as a believer, there's only one thing that is necessary, and that is to follow Christ. And that may get us killed. And that may get us our family killed. Um, who knows? It's always to follow Christ. So. It's so easy to say well I have to eat it's necessary that I eat it's necessary that I have shelter it's necessary that I defend myself and my family well if it's in keeping with Christ's will so yeah that's a necessity it's one of those things where it's just assumed well we know what's necessary but in Christ everything is changed so um Back to the criteria of uh, martyrdom. Again, in your last chapter, you're dealing with the criteria of martyrdom, how it relates to just war, and you also um, finish up with a section on the theology of sainthood. So um, you're tying all things together here in the last chapter. What are you What are you getting at?
1: I'm writing this book as a Protestant. Although anytime we talk about saints and martyrs, there's a lot of dialogue going on with especially Catholic traditions, since I'm in the West. But as a Protestant, you know, the notion of sainthood and even the notion of martyrdom is not something that I think should be restricted to the the very, very few um, hero Christians. You know, they, the Apostles Creed talks about the communion of the saints. We are all called to be sanctified in Christ. We are all, all Christians are called to be saints. And if living the life of holiness that is sainthood, um, takes us into conflict with the powers of the world, that, that life of sanctification could take the form of martyrdom. But with all of that, I think what, when the Christian church names particular people as saints or martyrs, what we're doing is pointing to those folks as good examples of the way the Christian life ought to be led or lived. Not to say, hey, look at those superheroes that are so far away from anything that I could do. If we're actually pointing at them, what we're saying is, that's an exemplary way of living the Christian life that I am called to to take very seriously, that I am called to consider emulating in my own life. It's a call to those of us living Christians It's a call to greater faithfulness. And so in relationship to military service, if it's possible that soldiers can be martyrs because they find a way to fight with Christ inspired restraint, they find a way to fight that expresses love of the enemy. And I actually think that sometimes that makes you more vulnerable on the battlefield. Then, that points back in our direction if we're pointing to particular people including soldiers as potential christian martyrs that's a way of saying we see the life of christ lived there truly and faithfully we ought to go and do likewise now that would mean we would have to go and fight but it means that something in the example there has a call upon us in a way that's the sixth criteria of martyrdom that i discuss in the book that If we're calling someone's story the story of martyrdom, that's because we are invited to live into that way of being a Christian in our own lives. And so I think this possibility of calling Christian soldiers martyrs under certain circumstances, not all circumstances, but certain circumstances, because we see something about the life of Christ there that's a reminder to us in the face of our own lives where we're tempted with various forms of coercion and violence. I mean, that's kind of the ultimate point of the book is to suggest that what we see in an extreme situation in martyrdom can have a bearing on our own ordinary lives.
0: All right. And finally, um, how would you sum up the message to the church? Say you're asked to give a sermon at a particular church, and what would the the core be there?
1: Well, the core message, I I think, would be to just think about the examples that we set in front of us. We might call them saints. We might call them martyrs. We might call them something else. But the role of examples— in the christian church is that they are supposed to shed light on the living out of the life of discipleship for us so you know this might speak to your question i mean you're a, you're a pacifist so you probably wouldn't take this approach in your own ministry but let's say someone is pastoring a church that's part of a just war tradition then i think pointing to certain examples from time to time of Soldiers who, yes, fought, but in a way that they really strive to do, you know, consistent with the call of Christ. Those should be set before us, not for us to just kind of gaze at them, to be so impressed at them. So I'm kind of repeating myself here, but in a way that nudges us towards greater faithfulness. That's, I think, why the Christian church has honored the martyrs from the very beginning. Because they're a, a window into something that we need to see. That can also be the case for us today.
0: All right. Well, I'm Dennis Metzler. You've been listening to The Charge. We've been with Dr. Matthew Lundberg. Um, he's the author of the book, Christian Martyrdom and Christian Violence on Suffering and Wielding the Sword. Uh, there's a link below. Uh, check that out. So, Dr. Lundberg, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, this was fun. Thanks for having me.
0: All right.